Hello and welcome to episode 121 of the Blind Buy podcast, you cunts. We're going to begin this week's episode with a poem which was written by the actor, Timothy Chalamet. I dribbled hot butter on my knee in a theatre in Portugal. We were there to see a performance of The Phantom of the Opera. The butter caused my kneecap to enlarge in a proud blister, filled with my fluids. At night, I could hear the waters of the blister slash around. My knees sounded like the oceans off the coast of Martinique. I drew a little beard and some eyes on my blister with a sharpie. The blister began to talk to my other kneecap. Started telling it what to do, where to go. And this is why I am here tonight at your door. That poem was called My Blister and was submitted by the French actor Timothy Chalamet. Thank you very much, Timothy, for submitting that. If you think you're having deja vu and believe to have heard this podcast before, don't worry, you have, because this podcast is a second version, an alternative version of this week's podcast, where I have put in the original piano music in the background. Can you hear that? Because the other version that I uploaded is the exact same podcast, but it has a slightly different new background music that I put in to to shake things up to see if you wanted something different. But the general feedback is some people love the music that I put in and others found themselves distracted by the new music. So I figure let's give you two versions. Two versions of the same podcast that you can choose to listen to depending on what your oral aesthetics are. He bollocks I know some of you are probably wondering uh, if I'm still doing dry January because it's like a month into January. I am. I have abstained completely from the drinking of alcohol for 28 days and it's it's joyful. It's joyful and it's pleasurable. I'm a big fan of it. Um, Am I going to continue not drinking alcohol? No. How do I explain it? It's... I... I'm, I'm nearly... I'm nearly doing dry January. Not for abstinence, but for a love and appreciation of alcohol. Here's the crack. I've been off it for a month. Fucking fantastic. Better sleep, more energy... Um, and my weeks are, are longer because it's like I'm not drinking six cans on a Saturday therefore I have Sunday free with no hangover so it's magnificent getting way more exercise done all the positives outweigh the negatives and my thing with uh, with alcohol or whatever as I've always said it's not the substance it's your personal relationship with it so dry January now is causing me to reassess my personal relationship with alcohol and what it's causing me to do is I'm no longer now going to just have cans on a Saturday night out of routine and boredom 
because that's that's what I was doing. It's like Saturday comes along and it's like I've done a lot of work all week. I deserve a reward. Let's have cans on a Saturday. But I was doing it out of routine. So fuck that. I'm not going to do that anymore. So I'm now going to have cans when I truly, really want them. And if I'm being honest with myself, I haven't had this month of no cans. I definitely don't want cans once a week. Might want them them once a month, twice a month. And when you abstain from a substance, when you make it rarer in your life, then you can appreciate it more. So there's an element of that too. Okay. This week's podcast is... uh, It's not a hot take podcast. I suppose it's a... A historical podcast. A a ramblings on history podcast. So what happened was... About a year ago... I'd heard... uh, I was in a pub or whatever. I'm not sure where I was. But I'd heard a fact... About Irish history. More a rumour... Or a little anecdote... From... A trusted source from a person who knew their shit about history. So if they said this thing to me, I knew they didn't pull it out of their hopes. There had to be some origin to this story. And the story that was told to me was so utterly fucking bizarre that I had to find out was this true. But when I went googling for it, I couldn't find any evidence of it. And then I kept searching and searching until I eventually came across one little mention of it which pointed to a book that was written in 1888. And the name of the book is Souvenirs of Irish Footprints Over Europe. And this book is mad like it's out of print very hard to fucking find I couldn't get any uh, online version of it so I went to Twitter and a few people helped me get the actual fucking book and I just want want to give a thank you to Pumpkin Spice Bag on Twitter and also Nick Daly who sent me Pumpkin Spice Bag works in the library And they sent me some photocopies of the book. And then Nick Daly, who I believe is an academic, managed to find a PDF of the actual book. Which was from some fucking American library. And he sent me that. So within the pages of this book. Contained the bizarre story. Which I heard about. Which I'm not going to reveal to you right now what this story is. I'm going to reveal it later on in the podcast. But here's the crack. So I had this book. This but I have it now. Souvenirs of Irish Footprints Over Europe from 1888. And I'd, I'd, I'd seeked out this book for this one fact. But as I started to read the fucking book. It becomes more than just this one fact that I was looking for. It's actually. It's an incredibly interesting and unique book. And I want to dedicate the podcast to speaking about this book. Speaking about the author and 
recounting to ye some of the class shit I found inside the book. So I've mentioned to you before, I'm I'm not a I'm not a historian, but I'm very passionate about history. I like I love history because it's 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 like time traveling, empathy. Do you know what I mean? And what I especially adore is when I'm I'm going to to the original source. Like it's one thing to go online. You know, and read articles about history and things like that. And it's another thing to take advantage of the fact that... Like with things like Project Gutenberg and shit like that... There's a lot of books, hundreds of years old... That have been digitally transferred and are available for free online. So there's all this shit out there. So, you know, I did a podcast... About 20, 30 podcasts back about faction fighting... You know, faction fighting in Ireland, and I was going back to books that were a hundred and hundred and fifty years old, and reading the actual accounts. I also like to use online resources like Irish newspaper archives, where I can type in a subject and find a newspaper article going back three hundred years. So this book, this is what this felt like, and it's a strange little book in that it's a travel book. If that makes sense. In in the vein of... I mean, travel literature is a, is a genre of itself, you know. It's kind of diminishing now. But... Travel literature, as in... A person would travel the world and then recount the tales of what happened on their travels. And then people would read this for two reasons. Number one... To escape... And number two, if that person had the resources to travel themselves and to become a tourist. And travel literature has always existed, but... Around the time when this book was written, which would be the mid-1800s onwards... Travel started to become accessible to normal people, we'll say. Like, so this book was written fucking... What was it, 1887 I think, 1888 sorry, it was written around then, and prior to 1888, travel would have been reserved for very much the moneyed classes, there was a cultural thing called the Grand Tour, which I've spoken about it before, but the Grand Tour would have started around the 1600s, it was was an English thing really, but very young wealthy nobility would travel to places of antiquity. They'd go to Greece, they'd go to Rome, they might go to the far reaches of the British Empire, what they'd refer to as the Orient. And this was a thing that young, wealthy men did at about the age of 21, and then they'd return. And ultimately what the Grand Tour was is it's about cultural capital. The Grand Tour emerges in the 1600s. It emerges out of the Industrial Revolution, right? And the thing with the Industrial Revolution and Britain or England, whatever the fuck, is before the Industrial Revolution, like, there would have been massive... Wealth inequality would have been more extreme. Wealth would have been in the hands of nobility. But what the Industrial Revolution did is... 
wealth became accessible to people who weren't considered noble. Wealth became accessible to people who weren't considered royal. A middle class emerged, essentially. People who would have owned factories or things like that started accruing wealth. So what you always see when that happens, when when wealth becomes threatened by a new class of people who accrue wealth, the only thing you have left is cultural capital. So what you see is the no- nobility going on, on these grand tours, going to the ruins of Pompeii or the, the Acropolis in Greece. It was a way to... It's like anyone can have money, but not anyone can have culture. You still see this today. You know, people with wealth trying to... I suppose you'd call it what, what, what what they'd refer to as class. It's like the wealthy Brits were like, well, if I traveled all of antiquity and... The thing with the Grand Tour as well, it was an opportunity to see works of art. Like, in the 1700s, the Mona Lisa might be something that was described to you and you had to go to Paris to see it or there were pieces of music that you had to travel somewhere to hear and that's what the Grand Tour did so it was a way for the upper crust to educate themselves to become cultured and for this then to be able to differentiate themselves from someone of equal wealth it was a way to say I'm classy you're not even though you have the same amount of money as me Around 1850, 1860 onwards, company started called Thomas Cook. Thomas Cook actually went into insolvency this year, or last year, 2019. But Thomas Cook were the first ever travel agent. They were the first proper travel agent. So now you had not just the wealthy who could afford grand tours, but now you had kind of what would have been by the 1850s onward standard the the regular kind of middle class now being able to travel because of Thomas Cook holidays and he used to take people on cruises to fucking down to Morocco or again it was very much within the confines of the British Empire so travel literature became a thing but it was still very British and this book Irish Footprints Over Europe appears to be an Irish travel book which is strange because the Irish didn't have a lot of wealth in 1888 but what you did have is the emergence of what you'd call a Catholic Irish middle class the political environment of 1880s in Ireland you're talking post famine the land wars are happening and also home rule is a thing and it's a time where an Irish Catholic middle class is emerging for the first time ever and I think that's who this book was for but what Irish Footprints Over Europe is is that it's a book about Irish people who travelled kind of all over Europe the book was written by a fella called Eugene Davis who was born in Clannacilty in Cork in 1867 the book was written in 1888 which would make him about 21 when he wrote it and by the looks of things this Eugene Davis chap was 
would have been an example of this emerging Irish middle class. I don't know, either his fucking parents had a bit of land or I'm not sure exactly, but he was sent when he was about 18 to the Irish colleges in in Paris, right? Which, for an Irish Catholic family in 1880, bear in mind that's 20 years after the fucking famine, for an Irish Catholic family in, in mid 1870s to be sending their their yomfala away to Paris to study in the Irish colleges is a fairly bougie move do you know what I mean so they probably they wouldn't have been wealthy but they wouldn't have been dark poor living in a shack often in those times how kind of Irish Catholic families for them to a crew what would have been deemed we'll say middle class in an Ireland that's run by the British they would have the teaching professions and becoming priests so your man Eugene Davis was sent to Paris to study ecclesiastical studies which means his parents probably wanted him to become a priest but when he got to Paris he wasn't too interested in his fucking studies and he appears to have used the money that he was supposed to be using for ecclesiastical studies to kind of just hang around Paris and become a freelance journalist. He was someone who had his eyes and his ears open, you know, looking around to see what the crack was. When Davis was in Paris, he started to kind of mix with within Irish circles, and a lot of the Irish circles then would have been kind of Irish political radicals. He was mixing with a lot of people who were in the Irish Republican Brotherhood, that was a, a secret society that would have been a precursor to the IRA. He was mixing with people who would have left Ireland because of their involvement in the Land League. Um, and these would have been groups that were kind of quasi-political, quasi-violent, organising action against landlords and rent and absentee landlordism back home. So he began to move in fairly radical circles when he was supposed to be studying his ecclesiastical shit. While he was in Paris, he became editor of United Ireland, which would have been a kind of an, uh, you know, a nationalist Irish magazine that would have had the idea of being free from Britain at its heart. But he doesn't appear to be, like, into violent republicanism. Like, violent republicanism would have been a thing in the 1880s, obviously. You had the likes of O'Donovan and Rossa, but mainly in the eighteen eighties, the, the the general mood of Ireland, and especially with this emerging Catholic middle class, was home rule. The Irish wanted home rule, which was a civil political fight for Ireland to rule itself, with the eventual goal of independence from Britain. The home rule kind of that that vision ended with 1916 and the explosion of violence of 1916 and what Pierce would refer to as the blood sacrifice. But this Eugene Davis fella, he appears to be nationalist but not physical force republicanism. But nonetheless, because of his associations in Paris, he was hanging around with Irish Republican Brotherhood fellas and drinking with them, some of them who would have been implicated in IRB actions and assassinations British intelligence ended up uh, 
keeping a close enough tab on him. So anyway, he wrote this fantastic book called Irish Footprints Over Europe. And it's a travel book which contains... It's the stories about the impact of various Irish people all over Europe, right? And it tells all those stories. And there's many different stories in it. And it has a kind of a nationalistic bent to it. There's a lovely sentence in it. I mean, ultimately what it does is it's... It's a story about travel for the people who you wouldn't think would want a travel book nor have the economic mobility to be able to travel but yet this book exists there's a lovely quote in it that kind of underpins the thesis of it he denounces uh, the absurdity of a proposition that a people whose children could rise to the highest rung of the social ladder and could rule and govern abroad that they're unworthy of ruling and governing at home so a kind of central tenet of the book is in Ireland, in an Ireland that's searching for home rule, you've got this continual message from the Brits that, or the, you know, the British power that, sure, Ireland can't have home rule. How could you give home rule to the Irish? They're a savage, stupid, unorganised, drunken people. We can't give them home rule. It's chaos. In fact, Britain should rule Ireland for the Irish, for the safety of the Irish people. Because if you allow the Irish people to govern themselves, it'll be chaos. So we're actually protecting them. And that would have been a dominant narrative at the time. It was a very racist, anti-Irish narrative. And for Davis, you get the vibe from this book that he's showing. Hold on a second, Brits. Why is it that when the Irish people in this book leave the country and go to fucking Italy and France and Germany that so many Irish people are able to gain success and influence and all of this shit surely this means that we're an equal people and that's the vibe within the book and the stories within it so the vast majority of the book it's about you know people from the flight of the earls there's a huge amount of priests and and fucking monks who've travelled all over Europe and established monasteries and established centres of education, Irish celebrities at the time, mostly male, but there's a few really fucking interesting stories and people in it that stuck out to me and that's who I want to talk about. So I did go looking through the book specifically to see if he'd spoken, like, you know, these footprints over Europe, these Irish footprints that he's speaking of, all these Irish people where were the women and there weren't many but I found one and it's just a fucking fascinating story so he appears to have met this she would have been an elderly woman at this point when he met her in the 1880s and she was in Madrid and she was kind of like what you'd call a celebrity in Madrid she had a salon and a salon would have been not like a hair salon, just like her house or her gaff would have been a stylish place. It would have been frequented by important people. So she would have, she'd have been an influencer within 1880s. But she was from Cork. And her story is fascinating. So sometime around the early 1800s, 
there was a girl from rural Cork who her name her second name was Skiddy we don't know her first name her second name was Skiddy which she then changed to Thompson because there just would have been a lot of shame around having an Irish name Thompson would have been a more British sounding name so she assumed the second name Thompson but she was from rural Cork she would have come from 1800s early 1800s Irish Catholic extreme poverty but she was apparently absolutely gorgeous to the point that people would just talk about her she had blue eyes and black hair and all this carry on and she obviously fit into whatever was the beauty standards of the time so one day anyway right was she from fucking Kinsale I think she was from Kinsale so whatever happened, wherever she was from, there would have been a bit of merchant ships coming in and out, right? So this fella called Mr. O'Shea, who was Spanish-Irish, and I think he could have traced his Spanish-Irishness to something to do with the flight of the Earls. So Mr. O'Shea was from Cadiz, in the very southern part of Spain. Cadiz is... It's almost in Africa. It's a real southern, southern port of Spain. So this fella O'Shea was a merchant from Cadiz, so he had a load of money. He arrives into Kinsale, I think it is, and he's spending a week or so in the town. And he sees this girl, and he's just head over heels, like this one is a fucking ride. So he becomes obsessed with her, and immediately proposes. Um, Now this is where... So I'm reading a book from 1888 and that the issue is it's written by a man who doesn't want to write a book. He doesn't even want to mention fucking women in the book. Like even even when he brings up like this is a, this is a book that contains 90% stories about men, Irish men. And even when he talks about the story of this woman from Cork he has to almost apologise for it he says the career of this creature is so interesting as to merit at least a paragraph at our hands he's apologising for mentioning a fucking woman in the book I've scoured the entire book and this woman's story is by far more interesting than a huge amount of the males that are in the story or in the book but regardless so this fella O'Shea who's Spanish Irish arrives from Cadiz proposes to her she says yeah because again all I have to go on is is the book so the book kind of leads me to believe that she's dark poor and now a wealthy fucking merchant from Spain wants to marry her so she goes fuck yes so she arranges to get married to your man and a month afterwards right she so her name is Thompson at this point which is a bullshit name she gets on a ship which he's paid for which is supposed to take her to Cadiz in Spain. But on the way, the ship that she's on is intercepted by pirates from Morocco, right? And the mad thing about this is this isn't the first time this has happened. To Cork, in the 1600s, 200 years previous to that, the town of Baltimore in Cork, the entire population of Baltimore was, was once kidnapped by Barbary pirates from North Africa and sold as slaves in the 1600s. But this one, Miss Thompson, Miss Skiddy, so she's off down to fucking Spain to get married to O'Shea, the merchant, the rich merchant. 
and her ship is captured by pirates and herself and everyone on the ship is then brought to Morocco and are at a slave market, right? Where everyone on the ship is now being sold into fucking slavery. She's just some young girl who thought she was getting married in Spain and now she's in Morocco being sold as a slave. So she's in the town of Fez with the rest of all the other Irish people. But apparently she was so beautiful, so insanely gorgeous that the entire town of Fez began speaking about there's this fucking woman who's been kidnapped, an Irish one, and she's the the hottest woman you've ever seen in your fucking life and it travelled around Fez so much that it ended up getting to the ears of the Sultan Muli Mohammed who'd be like the king of Morocco at the time right so the king of fucking Morocco goes I need to see this Bior whoever this slave one is if she's as gorgeous as everyone is saying if the whole fucking town is talking about her being beautiful I need to meet this woman now, I'm trying to assess this situation personally. The problem is, is that... So the only account I have of this story, Eugene Davis's book that I'm speaking about, and then when I went on to Google, the only other mention of her existence is in issue number seven of the New Yorker magazine from about 1830, I think, those are the only two mentions in the world about this woman and like Eugene Davis's account is it's 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 wrought with misogyny so it's hard to fucking it's hard to pin down the emotions of the situation so she's in the slave market the fucking king of Morocco hears about her he calls for her to which Eugene Davis writes her womanly vanity was highly tickled of course by this offer and she agreed to meet his majesty Like, she's after getting fucking kidnapped by pirates. She's in a slave mart. Like, I don't think vanity comes into it. I'd imagine for her this was fucking terrifying. She's just some girl from Cork and every man who sees her is drooling over her. And now she's a slave and the king wants to fucking meet her. So the king thinks, king of Morocco thinks she's such a fucking ride that he says... You have to be one of my consorts now. Which means... The king of Morocco would have had several wives. He asked her to be his wife. Now, the thing is... I don't think she has a choice there. She's a dirt poor slave from West Cork in fucking Morocco. And the king wants her to be his wife. So she's going to say yes. What happens if she says no? She's probably going to be killed. So she says yes. So this is what's not in Davis's account... Which is a shame, because her story is fascinating, but we only have two accounts of it, and none of them take into account fear, trauma, consent under duress, all this carry on. And Davis manages to get another little a dig in, so when she agrees to marry the king of fucking Morocco, Davis says, with that fatal fickleness of some members of her sex, she had forgotten the old love for the sake of the new. And it's like, chill out, Eugene, will you? Sorry, sorry she didn't fucking go back to your man O'Shea, the merchant, because now she's a fucking slave and the king of Morocco wants to marry her. Sorry she didn't say no. Like, give her a break, will you? 
But anyway, she marries the king of Morocco and she becomes then a sultana, right? And it would appear that this young one from Cork ended up being like the number one favourite wife of the king of Morocco in the in the 1800s and effectively making her queen of fucking Morocco. And the, the mad thing is, like, if you're listening going, so fucking what, she got married to a king. Like, according to the New Yorker article about her, she was his favourite fucking wife and was... would have been of considerable... Like, queens have fucking power, like... Even back then, like... A queen's power might not be direct in a way a king's is. But the accounts in the New Yorker, like, the favourite wife has influence on the king's decisions. And this particular king of Morocco, Mohammed IV, like, he was an important enough king. He he fought the Spanish-Moroccan War, which was a very important war with Spain. And as, as a king or a sultan, he was quite outward thinking. He was very much kind of into trade with Europe and cultural exchanges with Europe. When he when he left, I think Morocco went back more into feudalism, you know, rather than the more modern forward thinking. So she's important. She's very, very important. Like, so here's the mad thing. It's like Davis's book and one report from the New Yorker magazine. Do you, do you not think we should know if a girl from Cork was the fucking queen of Morocco for about 40 years? Is that not something we should all know? There's nothing nothing exists I've searched for it so your man anyway her her husband ended up I don't think he was killed but he was usurped someone else came in and said that they were going to be king of Morocco and she then fled Morocco and that's when the author Davis met her as an elderly woman in Madrid so she'd fled to Spain and because she was royalty the people of Spain looked after her and she had a, a successful kind of salon, so she would have lived as a incredibly wealthy. Davis mentioned that she lived to be an old age, a kind of a wealthy, influential celebrity who, whoever in Morocco had a few quid, was making sure that she was looked after because she was a, a former queen of Morocco. So, yeah, a fucking girl from Kinsale was kidnapped about 1800 by pirates from Morocco and became the queen of fucking Spain and I never learned about that in school which is just mad and while it is you know it's disappointing and it's disappointing and it makes me angry because it's like wow what a fucking incredible story and what an amazing life but to have it not done any justice because there's only two accounts written by men that don't take into it that are just digging at her they're digging at her they're just denying her her humanity or feelings. We don't know her first name. We know that her her second name may or may not have been Skiddy because she was comes from near Castle Skiddy, and that she assumed the name Thompson. But we don't know her first fucking name. A Bjorn from Cork who became Queen of Morocco. Come on. He, he, the vibe is kind of, oh, isn't that well for her? Oh, she got kidnapped, did she? Became Queen of Morocco though. Isn't that well for her? Um, but having said that aside from like 
that misogynist vibe about the book because it's 18 fucking 88 it it does it has its redeeming qualities so another thing about the book that's that i do find quite nice is just the name of it irish footprints over europe there's a lot of humility in the name itself and it translates throughout the book when you think of the world in 1880 and the big colonial powers, you know, France, Britain, Portugal, Spain, the Netherlands, incredibly wealthy nations that accrued their wealth from expanding and conquering and marching and destroying and killing. So to call the book Irish Footprints, there's a lovely, gentle, consensual, friendly vibe to it. It's like... The people in this book didn't get to Europe by starting wars or didn't get to Europe by killing or stealing. They didn't get to Europe as well. The word footprints is used too because he critiques the new emergent British tourists, the Thomas Cook era tourist, by saying that the Brits will always use modern travel. They'll always use ships and fucking railway, which in 1880 was modern. And Davis looked down on this saying, no, the people in my book, the Irish people, the, the monks, the priests, the fucking, the mercenaries, they walked. So it's about the mark. It's, it's not the mark that Irish people made. It's not the mark that Irish people forced, but the mark that Irish people leave through participating and being sound and being characters which I think it reflects it reflects nicely on Irish culture and it's something that still stands today I mention it a lot about we're just good tourists Irish people don't start trouble when we go abroad we get drunk and we have crack and we're seen as friendly but we don't have that colonial mindset where you go somewhere and start hassle so before I talk more about some of the interesting stories from this book and I, and I tell you the fucking main one the one that I'm leaving to last because it blew my fucking head off um, I'm going to do a little ocarina pause this is the bit in the podcast where we allow ACAS put some bullshit advertisements in so I'm going to play an ocarina it'll be out of tune now to the fucking this new music in the background 
disgusting. That was the Ocarina pause. This podcast is supported by you, the listener. If you're liking this podcast, if you're enjoying it, I make it for free. It's a huge amount of work. So, the podcast is supported by patrons. Do you want to become a patron of this podcast via Patreon? You can. Patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. And if you're liking the podcast, you can give me the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. And this is what pays my bills. This is what keeps the podcast going. And it's how I earn a living. So if you are listening to it and you can afford that and you're enjoying it, please fucking do. I really mean that. Please. Um, If you can't afford it, you can listen for free. That's how it works. It's a model that's based on soundness. And it seems to be working great so far. But I have to keep pushing and reminding people. You can also share the podcast, like it, leave a fucking review, whatever you want. Live gigs. Tomorrow I am going to fucking Australia. Alright. I have my Australia tour which is almost sold out. There's a very limited amount of tickets left in New Zealand, in Auckland and in Melbourne and Sydney. I think those three dates have a small amount of tickets left. Go to you just type it in Blind by Australia Podcast Tour 2020, whatever the fuck you'll find those tickets. Um, one thing, uh, uh, an appeal, right? Because when I do live podcasts abroad, it brings the Irish audience together. And I know that if you're coming to my gig, you're going to be around, you're just going to be in a community of Irish people living in Australia, and you mightn't have had that in a while. There's a tendency, and I've noticed this. For people to get pissed drunk. Because you're like. Fuck it I'm going to see Blind Boy. Wow there's my Irish friend from back home. Who I haven't seen in ages. Because Australia is massive. Now I'm in a room full of Irish people. It's like being in Ireland. And this naturally makes us get shit faced right. It's a live podcast. It's me talking to someone on stage. Please don't get too drunk. Alright because. I did a gig in London on a Saturday night and all it took was 10% of the audience to be shit-faced drunk for it to be really difficult. It's not like a Rubber Bandits gig where we're up there doing songs and having a mad time. It's a live podcast. It's me speaking to another person. It's really enjoyable. It's crack. People love it. But if you're getting shit-faced at a live podcast, you're ruining that for 10 people around you. And I'm only saying it because... It's this is just what happens when I do a gig in another country. The risk is there of us getting carried away with our Irishness. Do you get me? I also have some dates left for my UK tour. Glasgow and London are fully sold out as far as I know. But Liverpool and Birmingham do have tickets left and that's in March. Um, I'm also gigging Belfast very few tickets left for Belfast Ulster Hall very few and I have three dates in Dublin Vicar Street I think one of those nights is definitely sold out and tickets are going quickly that's for April for the other two Glore Theatre in Ennis as well why not there's my live gigs lads thank you for listening to that now back to the book Irish Footprints Across Europe and the other interesting characters within so I want to mention this bit mainly because it's it's weird but also the utter hatred that Davis 
writes about these characters. He says, and he's talking about Italy, he says, There is, however, in Rome, as there is on the banks of Lake Leman, another Irish colony of quite different traditions and characteristics, composed of people who profess to be the victims of the land war that has been going on in Ireland for the past two years. So what Davis is describing there, apparently in Rome, right? So Ireland in the 1880s, there was this business back home called the Land Wars. And what the Land Wars were, it would have been post-famine. So one of the issues in Ireland is that native Irish people didn't own a lot of the fucking land. Post-penal laws, it was no fun being an Irish person in Ireland, especially in rural areas. So what you had is is huge plantations owned by a single landlord. And if you wanted to live there, you had to spend pay really fucking high rent for a tiny amount of land. And the landlords didn't even live on their land. They were absentee landlords. They could have lived in fucking Spain. They could have lived in Britain. They were essentially just English nobility that had huge, huge amounts of land that they would rent out and... and really fucking crippled the Irish people and it made people very angry because it was uh, an unfair system that was resulting in death so the land wars were an attempt by kind of half political half violent attempt by the Irish people to rise up and fight the fucking landlords and some of it worked so apparently Davis when he was in Rome said that there was this small community of You'd call them Anglo-Irish, so they're essentially British people, but they might have been born in Ireland, but they wouldn't have identified as Irish. They would have been landed gentry that came from money, that owned a lot of land and, and were profiting from landlordism. So these people apparently had their fortunes fucked off them because the Irish rebelled and said, we're not paying your rent or we're stealing your land. don't want to say stealing, we're taking the land back. So... Davis speaks about these kind of real posh, haughty, totty Brits in Rome who were living in groups together, experiencing poverty for the first time but not really understanding it. And he identifies them as having posh English accents and wearing like really posh clothes but you can tell the clothes hadn't been washed in maybe two years. So they look like half peasant, half gentry, they still, even though they're living in poverty in Rome, won't let go of the fact that it's like, it doesn't matter how posh you think you are, it doesn't matter how fancy you think your clothes are, you're poor. But they wouldn't accept it. So they were spending all their money on like fucking champagne and brandy with top hats that had holes in them and shit occasionally going into the local shop to see if there's an English newspaper that which would give them permission to return home to Ireland and go back to owning their land again and Davis speaks about him with utter fucking contempt he says throughout the week the quote unquote exiles lead a dreary and monotonous existence the fairer portion of the community may be seen discussing small beer once in a while on the piazza di Spagna and he says some of these silk-stockinged oddities drown their cares at a grocer's shop hard by in a glass of Dunville or Jameson. 
the only thing Irish they cared about. And he's pure, thrilled with himself. Really happy that these former English landlords who once ruled over people and were absolute pricks and let people starve during the famine, that now they've gotten their comeuppance. He says, these kings in exile, these lords of a bygone age, are perhaps, after all, more to be pitied than absolutely condemned. For if they have committed sin, they have certainly paid the penalty thereof. So now I want to I get to the final fucking story, the story that, that led me to finding this book. The, uh, the anecdote that I heard in a fucking pub which was so utterly ridiculous that I had to hunt it down. I had to hunt down whether this was true or not. And the only evidence of it exists in this fucking book and I found it. So there was this old priest, right? And he was from Dunmanway down in County Cork, born in in 1729. So he'd have been born during the penal laws which is not a great time to be born the penal laws were extreme anti-catholic anti-irish laws brought in by the british that uh, it was it was aggressive systematic racial oppression that meant that irish people couldn't own land or fucking own a horse or get an education or enter certain professions it was a complete and utter attempt at undermining and crushing a population of people from a a systematic level and surprise surprise what happens after that the fucking Irish famine you know what what, what does a population who is starving do when they've them or their parents or their grandparents have never even had a fucking education so this priest Arthur O'Leary is a bit of a a legend because he became see the thing is with priests back then of course obviously they're priests and they're they're holy people but a lot of them are just fucking intellectuals and the priesthood was a way to get out of Ireland because they certainly want to if 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 a person had an intellectual hunger about them and a desire for knowledge and learning you're not going to fucking do it in Ireland during the penal laws so Father O'Leary fucked off to France and He's fair well known. Like the thing is, like I said about this book, Footprints, his Irish Footprints in Europe. Like there's a lot of people in there who you can read up about and who are well known. And then you've got your more obscure ones, like the, the Queen of Morocco. But this particular, or the reason I'm mentioning O'Leary is it's, it's not fucking O'Leary that's interesting. It's something that O'Leary saw on his travels. So Father O'Leary spent most of his time in France, right, um, working with monks and he became a political commentator and he was a writer and he was a philosopher and would have been world-renowned and someone who seriously left his fucking, left a mark on the world, you know. He, he, he'd be one of these strong footprints in Europe. But fucking Davis dedicates an entire chapter to him about his travels in France. So anyway, O'Leary would have been known for travelling around France on foot. 
in the book it says uh, Father O'Leary during his 25 years sojourn in France used to spend his holidays in exploring the country on foot he used to walk from the convent of St Malo to the feet of the Pyrenees or promenade all the way from the gates of Paris to the banks of the Rhine backwards and forwards within a month he was strolling one evening along the quays in Boulogne-sur-Mer, whatever the fuck how that's pronounced in French, I don't know. But anyway, Father O'Leary on one of his walks ended up in this town, uh, Boulogne-sur-Mer, and he notices when he's gone along the quays, right, there's this huge crowd circling around something. So O'Leary's like, right, fuck, fuck it, what's going on here? What, what's everyone looking at? So as he goes over, he sees that the crowd is after gathering around this, a bear, right? Like a fucking, a huge big brown bear and the bear's keeper, okay? And everyone's jaws are like dropped looking at this incredibly well-trained bear, right? And O'Leary anyway sticks around Boulogne for a couple of days and literally everyone in the entire town it all they're talking about is this fucking bear have you seen this bear that's down by the keys you have to go and see him this is unbelievable like the bear was doing shit that bears don't normally do it wasn't like balancing balls on his nose and doing tricks the bear was like he was able to mark the hour on the clock he was able to, if he said hello to the bear, the bear would nod backwards. And he made, um, as as Davis says, he was able to do an oriental salam to the ladies. Which is like a, I don't know what it is, but I'm guessing it's some type of very complicated greeting. And the people of this town, Boulogne, were just enamoured with this incredibly intelligent fucking performing bear. So because people were so fascinated, and now at this point people were travelling to see the bear... The bear was just working all day on the keys and people giving money every time the bear did a trick. So Father O'Leary goes back down to the keys to get another look at the bear. And on the day that he's there, the bear like is visibly tired, right? But there's so many people that the bear's keeper is like anytime the bear sits down because they're tired, the keeper comes up with a stick and starts poking the stick into the fucking bear right but then the keeper starts poking the bear so much that the bear starts roaring and screaming right but the bear starts talking in a language that nobody in the crowd understands except for Father O'Leary who's like what the fuck so Father O'Leary's now in the crowd so he shouts at the bear which is Gaelga, Irish for how do you do Pat and then the bear stops looks over at Father O'Leary and shouts Slan which means pretty well thank you so now at this point Father O'Leary starts freaking out and going hold on a second this bear is performing tricks now he's speaking fucking Irish What what the fuck is going on so he summons the mayor of Bouillon to come down and see this fucking bear that's performing tricks and able to talk Irish. 
Now, everyone starts panicking because they're like, oh shit, they weren't just bear noises that bears make. That bear was talking a language and this priest can understand what it is. Now, you have to remember, this is the 1800s, right? Like, so you and I are imagining ourselves going, fuck that, if I, if I was there, alright, I'm going to start asking questions. But like, this is the 1800s. These are just the regular poor people of France and Father O'Leary looking at a fucking performing bear that's talking Irish. These people have never seen a bear before. These people aren't opening up YouTube or looking at books to see photographs of what a bear looks like. So if you arrive with a fucking bear to 18th century France and you tell people it's a bear, people are just going to go, I guess that's what a bear is, isn't it? So the fucking mayor comes down and Father O'Leary and the mayor go up to the bear. And then all of a sudden, (laughs) the keeper fucking runs away. And it turns out, right, that it's, it's a man imprisoned in a bear costume. Like, against his own fucking will. And it turns out that, like, there was this dark poor Irish fella from Waterford who didn't even speak English like from a fucking stone hut in Waterford famine fucker who only spoke Irish and he'd managed to get a job as a fisherman or something and he got onto a boat that was supposed to go from uh, Waterford all the way to Bilbao in Spain but on the way to Spain he was delivering dried cod It was either his own cod or someone else's cod, but he was delivering dried cod to Spain. The boat, like, sank and fell apart, right? But he was down in the bottom of the boat. And when the boat sank, he managed to hang on to a chicken coop. And he kept himself afloat on a chicken coop at sea. Just him and a lot of chickens floating in the middle of the sea. And then he was found by some fishermen. But the fishermen brought him in. And they somehow had a bear costume and they sewed him into the bear costume and forced him to perform as a fucking bear in France to a lot of French people who'd never seen a bear before. And when when the mayor and Father O'Leary, like when Father O'Leary spoke to the the man, the Waterford man in the costume, Asquelga in Irish, to ask him, like, like the first question was, why, why the, f- like... Why did you uh, uh, let yourself be sewn into a bear costume and to perform as a bear? Like, why didn't you at least try and get out of that situation? Because it's an insane situation and it doesn't look that hard to get out of. And the Waterford man said, "I, I didn't really mind being sewn into a bear costume because they fed me really well. So being inside, sewn inside a bear costume was good enough for me. I'll do that. Yeah, they just, they kept giving me food though. But he only started getting pissed off when his act got so popular that they kept poking him with a stick. And that's when he started shouting at him in Ireland or or in Irish. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And it's just so fucking beautifully Irish and absurd. I love it. It's like fucking Flann O'Brien and Samuel Beckett and the voyage of St. Brendan, except it's real life and it really happened. And it's such a beautiful, absurd metaphor. It's like this fucking dark, poor Waterford man who spoke Irish. His life in Ireland in the early 1800s with penal laws and the famine was so bad that performing as a dancing bear against your will and sewn into a costume is better than British rule. So that there is the story that led to this podcast. That's the story that... I was in the pub and someone who knows their history and who doesn't bullshit said to me, did you hear about the, the man in 17th century France from Waterford who was forced, who was sewn into a bear costume and forced to perform? And I said, where the fuck did you hear it? And they said, I don't know, but I know it's true. And it haunted me. It haunted me. I couldn't walk away from here and that and not find out whether it happened or not. And that's what led me to this book from 1888. Uh, Footsteps of the Irish in Europe over Europe by Eugene Davis okay that's all for this week I'll see you next week I'm going to be in Australia I've brought all my recording equipment with me so we'll see what happens hopefully I can get a fucking podcast that I record outside that has the sound of like crickets or frogs or some shit like that I'm still waiting for that maybe Australia I can make it happen alright yurt <laughs>